episode 32, The Truth About Socialism, part 2. Before we get started, I want to ask you to do me a favor and share the show. If you're on Facebook or Twitter and the topics such as socialism, abortion, the Federal Reserve, Social Security, minimum wage, or health care reform comes up, please share the specific TruthQuest episode with them. If you're listening to this on the Apple Podcast app, please take a moment and scroll down on the podcast page and give it a five-star rating. Another way you can help me grow the show is to throw a small donation my way at the TruthQuest podcast patronage page. See the show notes page at truthquest.podbean.com for a link. The easiest way to stay up to date on the podcast is to subscribe to it at iTunes or Google Play Music. It's also available on Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, and YouTube. Finally, please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast. Okay, so as this is part two of my message on socialism, I want to start with a recap of the previous episode. So number one, I explained that there are no large-scale socialistic success stories in human history. Secondly, we examine the morality, or better put, the immorality of socialist message. Thirdly, we examine the inherent contradictions hidden in plain sight inside of socialism. Fourth, we looked at where this movement found its roots. Then we looked at the shift towards socialism in America and how it's being accomplished incrementally. And finally, how socialism violates both economic and natural laws. In today's episode, I want to start with unanswered questions for skeptics. So regular listeners know that I am a big advocate for the use of questions as a means of persuasion. After all, if you are truly on a truth quest, there is no better way to find it. This topic is no exception. If you have listened to episode 31, you at least have some idea of what socialism is and the results from the socialistic policies. So I thought I would start this episode with a series of questions for skeptics. So for new listeners, these are questions that skeptics of your position must be forced to answer before you move forward in a debate. You see talking heads interviewed on TV all the time who avoid answering tough questions. They just filibuster because they know the segment is only five minutes long. Your friends do it to you on social media all the time. You ask them a clarifying question about something they said, and they never really answer your question. So as I see it, your job is to continue to pose the question before moving forward with the dialogue. Often their silence exposes the weakness of their position. They just don't want to be forced to say it. The best example of this is from episode number two, The Truth About Abortion. In that episode, I encouraged you to ask skeptics to answer the question, what about the baby? Regardless of what BS they throw at you, like women's right to choose, reproductive rights, you can't tell women what to do with their bodies, you just sit and wait for their answer to the question, what about the baby? When it comes to socialism, I have five or six questions for skeptics that I encourage you to use. First, If socialism is so great, why do you have to force it on people? So you can just think about Obamacare, maybe point that out to them. You know, it's a socialized medical scheme. And what did it take to get it passed? It was forced on the American people with lies on top of lies. President Obama's credibility was irrevocably damaged after his stream of lies, and many Democratic congressmen who voted for the law lost their seats in the 2012 election. That's quite a high price to pay to force socialism down the throats of American people. The next two questions for skeptics come from my favorite policy wonk, Daniel J. Mitchell. The first one is, can you name a nation that became rich with statist policies? The second, 
Can you name a nation that employs extensive interventionism and big government policies that is outperforming a similar nation with free markets and small government? By the way, Mitchell's blog is called International Liberty, and it's located at Daniel J. Mitchell, with one L, I believe, dot wordpress.com. I'll put a link to it in the show notes page at truthquest.podbean.com. Next, what is likely to happen when everything is run and owned by the government? So, like, what will happen to the motivation of workers, innovators, small business owners, potential business owners? Even though you know the answer, especially after listening to episode 31, remember that the point of these questions is to force your debate partner to articulate a response themselves. This next question for skeptics is designed to address the most often cited defense of socialism. Have you ever noticed that when a socialist skeptic points out the long list of failures, like I did in episode 31, the pro-socialists always say something like, well, that's because it wasn't done properly. So, question for skeptics. What was wrong with the way socialism was done in Venezuela? Cuba? China? What about in the past? Soviet Union, East Germany, Poland, Romania, Hungary, North Korea? You ask advocates to be specific with each example. Maybe if they actually took the time to critique each situation, they can figure out how to perfect it themselves. But more likely, they'd come to the conclusion that socialism is a foolish and dangerous path. Christian Nemitz of London's Institute of Economic Affairs put it this way, quote, Articles in this genre share a number of common flaws. First, as much as the authors insist that previous examples of socialism were not really socialist, None of them can tell us what exactly they would do differently. Secondly, the authors do not seem to realize that there is nothing remotely new about the lofty aspirations they talk about and the buzz phrases they use. Giving the people democratic control over the economic life has always been the aspiration and the promise of socialism. Thirdly, contemporary socialists completely fail to address the deficiencies of socialism in the economic sphere. They talk a lot about how their vision of socialism would be democratic, participatory, non-authoritarian, nice and cuddly. Suppose they could magically make that work. What then? But we would still be left with a dysfunctional economy. Ultimately, the contemporary argument for socialism boils down to, quote, next time this will be, it'll be different because we say so. After more than two dozen failed attempts, that is just not enough. So, Really, folks, skeptics are exemplifying the definition of insanity, that they're trying the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Okay, final question for skeptics. Can you honestly say that you believe some bureaucrat in Washington, D.C. knows more about the economy in Seattle or the education system in Omaha or the employment situation in Lansing or the immigration issues in El Paso or the environmental issues in Pittsburgh, real estate issues in Florida, Healthcare in West Virginia, gang problems in Oakland. I mean, the list goes on and on. And the answer is always no. So let's shift gears and address something I promised to do in episode 31, and that is, well, what about the Scandinavian countries? So the bottom line is, these are not socialistic countries. They are formerly wealthy, economically successful countries that decided to raise taxes and provide lots of social programs to the taxpayers. So here's a series of facts. Number one, they're small, homogeneous countries. That's the exact opposite of America. Number two, as I mentioned, taxes are very high in order to pay for all the not-so-free stuff. Third, 
the consequences of higher taxes is less money available for other things, investment, factories, research and development, entrepreneurial endeavors, capital investments, and savings. Fourth, their economies are largely free markets. This is key for you to understand. The markets in these countries look more like what America used to look like. They are more capitalistic than modern-day America in many regards. Fifth, there is no minimum wage laws in these countries. However, unions are prevalent and do their own damage to wages, but that is a topic for another episode. So they avoid government meddling in the price of labor and avoid all the pitfalls that come with it. Number six, they have extensive private property legal protections. I thought socialism was all about taking away private property rights. And finally, get this, Sweden has school choice. Citizens get vouchers to be used for, to shop for their kids' education. Doesn't sound like socialism to me. Because these countries were previously wealthy, they had the luxury of looking at that wealth and making an argument that it needs to be spread around. Does that sound familiar to my American listeners? So what happened to all that previous economic growth in these countries? Well, as you may imagine, it has stymied. Remember, in episode 31, I talked about socialism suffering from an incentive problem. Well, you see it manifested in the Nordic countries. With 70% of your income going to the state, human nature dictates that you not work very hard. The incentive to make more money, innovate, start a new business, expand your current business is gone. Multiply that by millions of people and tens of thousands of companies, and the result is a slow or no-growth economy. One good sign for these countries is that they continue to rank high on the economic freedom surveys, but that doesn't sound much like socialism to me. In 1994, Sweden started reversing some of their socialistic tendencies by reducing regulation and government spending and reforming their welfare programs, and they just were basically trying to shrink government. They went from having one of the highest per capita incomes in the world from the 1870s to the 1950s to less than the state of Mississippi, which happens to be the lowest in the U.S. Something had to be done there. They still have a 60% plus income tax rate, plus 7% in Social Security, plus a 25% consumption tax. But for that, you get a pension, health care, unemployment insurance, education through the Ph.D. level, child care, very generous leaves of absence from work with benefits including uh, education up to six months, starting your own company up to six months off there, parental leave up to 16 months with 80% of your pay during that time off. And on top of that, there's 16 public holidays. Ten of them are Christian-based, even though just 5% of the population is our regular church attendees. Still don't believe me when I claim that the Scandinavian countries are not socialistic? Here is what the Prime Minister of Denmark recently said in a lecture at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. Quote, I know that some people in the U.S. associate the Nordic model with some sort of socialism. Therefore, I would like to make one thing clear. Denmark is far from a socialistic planned economy. Denmark is a market economy. So let's tackle religion and socialism. So true socialism requires the removal of religion from the public square. See, socialism requires that the state become the god. Think about it. Those in power cannot successfully implement socialism if the people have a god above the state. This is one issue where all religions can come together. Muslims, Jews, Christians, Mormons, etc. Persecution of the church is a push toward socialism. Think about the removal of God and prayer from the public schools. 
Think about the demonization of the Covington Catholic boys and their recent run-in with some crazy left-wing activists in Washington, D.C. And as we often see with left-wing ideologies and causes, they often become religions of their own. Think about climate change and global warming, social justice, abortion, animal rights, transgenderism, gay rights, the Me Too movement, Occupy Wall Street. I mean, a, a lot of isms are religions. Socialism is no different. Communism, environmentalism, liberalism, progressivism, sexism, racism, intersectionalityism. I don't even think that is an ism. Hell, our political parties have become little g-gods to some of our fellow citizens. You know this by the reaction these people have when anyone opposes their point of view. If it includes name-calling, defamation, shutting down a debate, you know you're on to something. I would even throw public education into this list of secular gods. Think about the illogical arguments and attacks when they try to limit the number of charter schools, or they attack religious schools, or anyone who proposes school vouchers. This all stems from a socialistic mentality whereby the public schools serve as a god, and anyone who does not share that faith, like people who want to open a charter school or a school choice that competes with the failing school system, is demonized. They're shouted down and publicly lambasted. See, that's because there are underperforming teachers and irrelevant education administrators sitting on fat salaries that must protect their jobs and their religion. Just as I argue the practice of abortion is murder and therefore not consistent with Christianity, I believe the same is true with socialism as it violates three of the Ten Commandments. Theft, jealousy and envy, and worship of other gods. The nastiest socialists to ever walk the planet, the Nazis and communists in the Soviet Union and China and Cambodia, they all worked to remove organized religion from the ranks of their subjects and replace it with the state. They then went on to kill over 100 million people. Okay, so what's the solution? There's lots of gloom and doom there. Well, the solution to socialism is capitalism. More capitalism, more free markets. We need to return the country to the constitutional limited government system that was bequeathed to us by the Founding Fathers. Right now, we are engaged in a propaganda war. Education, or in this case, re-education, is necessary. That is why I recorded these two podcast episodes. This is the TruthQuest podcast, and the truth is... Capitalism is the most effective economic system ever devised by man. Show me a better one and I'll be on board. Despite that fact, we are told socialism is the answer despite this truth. It has a 100% failure rate. If that's the case, why do liberal-minded politicians advocate for socialism? Two words, power and control. See, under socialism, power is ceded to the few. As we discussed in episode 31, the elites in a socialistic society always live high on the hog while everyone else lives in real socialism, dividing up the leftovers. So there are only three explanations as to why liberal-minded politicians advocate for socialism. One, they believe they will end up on top, so it doesn't matter what the failure rate is, they'll be taken care of. Or two, they know the message of jealousy, resentment, envy, and entitlement resonates with their base and it will buy them votes. Or three, they are stupid. Are there any other explanations? Think about it. While capitalism teaches people to work more and be grateful for what they earn, socialism teaches people to demand more and continue their search for the next entitlement. Under socialism, people wait in line for bread. Under capitalism, bread waits for people. The main difference between capitalism and socialism is capitalism works. You can bash capitalists all you want, but they make their money by serving their fellow man, by focusing on customer service, voluntary exchanges. 
That is the polar opposite of socialism, where there is no consideration for the customer. Everything comes from the on high, top down, shove down your throat, take it or leave it, you better eat this shit sandwich or else mentality. So capitalists cannot screw their customers and stay in business very long. Socialists, on the other hand, do not have to worry about their customers because they got nowhere else to go. That's why places like the DMV, VA hospitals, the IRS, and social services offices are such terrible experiences. Think about any government agency you deal with and compare it to your local auto mechanic or online retailer. See, under socialism, you cut the pie into equal pieces, and the pie never increases in size. Under capitalism, when you leave everyone alone, the pie continues to expand, and people can get as much of it as they want, or as much of it as they can earn. There's nothing to stop them or hold them back. Ben Shapiro put it this way, quote, Free markets grow things. That's why it's harsher. But only in the short term, certainly not in the long term which is why we live better now than we did 20 years ago, and socialist countries live worse than they did 30 years ago. So capitalism, at its very core, is the legal protection of private property. Without legal protections, few are willing to take risks and build new businesses. Few will conduct research and development. Few will innovate. Few will invest. Without the legal protections of private property, the environment is not stable. At its core, socialism is simply the removal of legal protection that is at the heart of capitalism. Mises.org points out that capitalism is not a system of competition any more than any other system. Capitalism, at least in its free market, laissez-faire ideal, is a system of a voluntary exchange of goods and services in the absence of physical coercion, theft, compulsion, or fraud. Or, for brevity, capitalism is a system of voluntary exchange predicated on the right to own property. It is capitalism that is the system most characterized by cooperation. Mark Perry from Fee.org said this, In a world of scarcity, it is essential for an economic system to be based on clear incentive structure to promote economic efficiency. The real choice we face is between imperfect capitalism and imperfect socialism. Given that choice, the evidence of history overwhelmingly favors capitalism as the greatest wealth-producing economic system available. The strength of capitalism can be attributed to an incentive structure based upon three P's. One, prices. Two, profit and loss. Three, private property. The failure of socialism can be traced to its neglect of these three incentive-enhancing components. He continued, capitalism will play a major role in the global revival of liberty and prosperity because it nurtures the human spirit and inspires creativity and promotes the spirit of enterprise by providing a powerful system of incentives that provide thrift, hard work, and efficiency. Capitalism creates wealth. Socialism is the exact opposite of all of those descriptions. Okay, so what about the complaints about capitalism? You know the cries about exploiting workers, profits before people, nonsense like that? Well, in America, there is no forced or involuntary servitude. We did away with that after a rather costly war. So everyone is free to find another job if they feel exploited. Well, what about the exploited workers overseas? They are exploited by dirty, profit-hungry capitalists. Well, how so? Like the Nike, you talking about the Nike factories in Vietnam or the Apple plants in China and the sweatshops in the fill-in-the-blank developing countries? What I would say to that is before you throw that stone, you should really research those situations. Turns out, despite the fact that many of these workers are earning what you consider servant-level fees, it seems like that money is pretty well received as workers line up by the thousands to apply for these jobs. And consider what's the alternative? Starvation? Prostitution? 
I mean, if mom and dad can earn a steady income, then the kids can go to school rather than working themselves to help make ends meet. See, things are not as simple as they appear. What about the inequality that advocates for socialism claim needs fixing? So consider their cries about income inequality. You know what I mean. All the class warfare nonsense constantly harped on by the left. The rich, the 1%, Wall Street, CEOs, Warren Buffett's secretary pays a higher tax rate than him. Well, as is often the case, when you tear down arguments made by lefties, what they accuse you of is exactly what they are doing. See, under capitalism, it's largely a meritocracy. You get what you deserve. Work hard, earn more. Sit on your ass, make excuses, and you'll earn less. It is usually your fault under capitalism if perceived inequality exists in your life. However, under socialism, there is always income and wealth inequality by design. The elite sit pretty on top and the losers of life's lottery split up the scraps. There is no in-between. There is no middle ground. There is no middle class under socialism. This is a key point that I want you to remember. Under socialism, inequality is guaranteed. It's baked into the system. Never forget that the difference between rich and poor today is nothing compared to centuries ago. Consider a feudal landlord and his serfs. The rich and poor in America all have running water, electricity, climate-controlled environments, televisions, computers, cars, appliances. The rich may have nicer, bigger, more expensive things, but both classes of people are similarly served. Well, we covered a lot of ground on these two episodes. I hope you will bookmark them in your browser or save them on your podcast app for later use. Over the next two years, we are going to be in for quite a showdown with socialism. The Democratic Party appears to be all in, as no prominent leaders of that party offer any moderating voices. So you better be ready to rebut their hateful cries for socialism as they play on the worst of human emotions, greed, jealousy, envy, and resentment. Their constant cries for free stuff, their demonization of wealth and prosperity. Just remember, their vision is one with the few sitting pretty at the top of the economic totem pole while the majority try to survive on whatever is left over. It happens every time it's tried. Please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast.